This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Well, in some people's eyes, it's only an alleyway. What's the big deal? But to many of the residents in Dundas, and especially in that Dundas neighborhood, uh, well, it's a very important alleyway. It's a a walkway. It's an access point uh, for kids going back and forth, for people in that community to get from point A to point B instead of having to go around the block onto a busy street. Well, the city, nonetheless, has voted to sell off a closed and close off an alleyway in Dundas that has garnered some controversy over the last number of years. We've talked about this issue before as it came to committee. Yesterday, the Public Works Committee actually voted on this. Now, that needs to be ratified at a full council meeting, of course, but it was a unanimous vote yesterday at the committee level to close this down in spite of the fact that a number of citizens uh, came and spoke on this issue. Uh, Robert James is a resident of Dundas whose property backs onto the laneway. He's lived there for 37 years. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us the perspective on that. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us again. Thanks for uh, being here. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be back again. Let, let's talk a little bit about exactly uh, where we are on this. Maybe just for those who may not be fully aware of this issue, Bob, if you could just bring us up to speed on, on what the issues were and, and why this is before council and why so many neighbors are concerned. Uh, the initial problem was that the uh, person who applied to buy the alleyway uh, paved part of the alleyway and put a fence across it before he made any application to purchase the alleyway. He acted as if the, uh, the public alleyway was his own private property prior to making an application to purchase. I think that's what got a lot of people upset in this area. It's an alleyway that's been used for 160 years as a public uh, thoroughfare. Uh, initially for, for obviously 160 years ago for carriages, then for cars and, and pedestrians, and most recently for the last 15 years, pedestrian only. Uh, provides a good, safe transportation system between uh, Victoria Street and Alma Street in, in Dundas, and uh, has not been a problem. Uh, this is quite different from most of the alleyways that you see unused in, in parts of even Dundas, but certainly in Hamilton as well. Um, I visited some other alleyways, and and, uh, many of them are overgrown, unused, uh, become repositories for garbage and various other things. This one is not that. It was clean. It was well-maintained. It's used on a regular, daily basis. Um, So that's something that we fought to preserve and uh, didn't succeed, unfortunately. The, uh, let's talk about the safety issue for a second. You mentioned that in past days, in bygone days, it was a carriage route. It was, uh, I guess, used for vehicular traffic way back when, but you can't do that anymore, can you? No, it's it's been narrowed. Uh, about 14, 15 years ago, there was a narrowing done of it so the cars couldn't pass through it. And I think most of us were quite happy with that because the cars tended to use it as a quick uh, thoroughfare, and that became a little dangerous at times. Um, but it's been used successfully. I mean, people walk their dogs through there. Uh, mothers and fathers push baby strollers through there. A lot of us walk through there. We bicycle through there. We jog through there. It's a, it's a good, safe area. There's, in 160 years, there's never, to my knowledge, been any incident of anybody being hurt in that alleyway by vehicular or other traffic or coming out of that alleyway either. Now, we also want to make something clear here, though, Bob, uh, for, for the sake of those who may not be fully up to speed on this issue. Uh, this is owned by the city. I, they call it unassumed, which means basically they don't want to take any liability. They don't do any maintenance on it, et cetera. But as of today, uh, it's still city property. That's correct. Yeah, it's absolutely still city property. The The process is it has now been passed by the Public Works Committee. It goes to the full city council, I believe, on the 28th of July. Uh, or of June, sorry, uh, and then needs to go through a process where a bylaw is passed, it gets approved by the judge, uh, and then becomes official. Now, one of the interesting things in this is because this is part of the Cross Melville Heritage District, uh, it also needs to be approved by the Heritage Committee. Um, he's gone ahead and paved it, which uh, changes the heritage character of, of that area, as well as causing more black surface and runoff and so on. And so the Heritage Committee has to take a look at it and say, do they approve of uh, the drainage, the look of it, and so on. So now, that's, that's what, that was then. This is now. Uh, the, the abutting landowner, I guess one of the abutting landowners, Mr. Medeiros, uh, wants to purchase the alley. That, that's essentially what brought this to committee. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, and we'll get into the price in a second because that's a little eye-opening as well. Uh, but as you say, there was assumption. Some of the neighbors I know, because uh, they contacted me over the last couple of months, were upset about the fact that Mr. Medeiros, in in some way, shape, or form, seemed to think that you know, as you say, by paving part of it, seemed to think, well, he already owned this. 
Uh, it's a touchy subject, uh, and I know that the, the counselor for the area, uh, Councillor uh, Vanderbeek for the area for Dundas, uh, has, has taken a position on this. She's supporting actually closing it down and selling this off privately, much to the chagrin, I guess, of, of you and some of uh, of the other neighbors who spoke on there. Uh, but their feeling here, is, from what I understand, is the same feeling that they have with all other what they call unassumed alleys. Uh, they were a, an effective thing to use, I guess, back in the 1930s and 40s, not so much now. And they basically like them to go away, wouldn't they? Well, they don't want the cost. They're afraid of the legal liability as well as the financial liability. And I, I understand that from uh, the point of view of, of, uh, of a corporation, the city of Hamilton. But in this particular case, I think that's probably true of many of them. And I've seen, as I say, other alleys that, that yes, by all means, get rid of them. They're, they're not serving a purpose. Back in that same block, there are two other unassumed alleyways that have basically, the land has been subsumed by the adjacent landowners, and nobody is complaining about that. This one is used in its particular alleyway. This one is used uh, as a way for many people, 30, 40, 50 people a day go through that alleyway to get from one street to the other as a safer, quieter, leafier uh, way to get uh, around. And it's part of the fabric of this community. Yet the staff report and, and some of the comments from uh, Councillor Vanderbeek yesterday seem to indicate that it's not safe, especially for kids, because there's no sidewalk on the one end of it there, and kids are going to be forced to jaywalk, I guess, to get to the school, which uh, they feel is going to put them in a problematic situation. How do you respond to that? Well, of course, you can't uh, you can't be unconcerned about the safety of, of children in particular, and that is there is a children's school right across from the one end of the alleyway. Uh, it's true that there's a lot of people who, uh, mothers, fathers, who bring their kids to school by car and park there and walk their kids across. Um, and so there are some concerns about that, no question. The city put signs at either end of the alleyway trying to discourage kids from using that as an access point because we do have a crossing guard at the corner, which is about 50 meters away from the alleyway. Um, and that's been effective in keeping children from, from crossing at that point and, and moving instead to the crossing guard. So I think they've done what they wanted to do, which is to improve the safety of the children. Uh, it doesn't seem necessary to me to go that extra step to close the alleyway on a permanent basis. Who's using the alley right now? I, I, I consist, you know, if I go over there at noon today, I, mm-hmm. who, who am I going to see in that alleyway? You'll see people walking their dogs. You may see people going through on bicycles. You'll see people with uh, strollers. You'll see people on their way to the driving park in Dundas. You'll see people on their way to downtown from uh, north of uh, that area. Uh, You'll see people walking to the shopping area of Dundas. Uh, You'll see people just going for a walk um, because they they enjoy it. It's it's part of the structure, as I said, of of the community of of Dundas. But if this goes through... And, and, and as I say, it's passed unanimously at the committee level now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens? I mean, obviously, I'm assuming that uh, the proposed owner here, Mr. Medeiros, is, is not going to allow public access. I don't get any indication that, that he's going to. Uh, what do those residents do then? Well, yeah, our guess would be that he, he will close off the alleyway. That's, that's likely he closed it off before he applied for uh, ownership. And so now that he apparently will be getting ownership, I'm sure he'll close it again. Um, so uh, what happens beyond that? Well, I guess it becomes private land. And the unfortunate thing is that this is another piece of our public ownership, which is going into private hands uh, and will not ever be public again. Uh, and there ain't a whole lot of public land going around. Um, they don't make it anymore. We're talking 1,200 square feet of, of land in the prime residential area. This is the, the prime residential area of Dundas. That land is very valuable. You mentioned before you wanted to talk a little bit about the cost of this. Well, the cost to him is, uh, is a grand total of $2 to buy this land. Um, what, a, what a bargain. Well, and you look at what that does to the value of his own property, and, and it's got to increase the value of his property by uh, $50,000 to $100,000, I would guess. But I'm, I'm guessing. I'm not a real estate agent. But, but it's certainly going to cost a whole lot or increase his value by a lot more than the $2 he's paying for it. One of the things that intrigued me about this, uh, when, when, when you contacted me, Bob, and, and, and Dave Jones and a few other folks a, a few months ago when this was starting to, to heat up once again, 
uh, was I've seen this happen in other parts of the city, and, and, and I can even relay back to my time on city council uh, some time ago up in the, Ward 7 on the Central Mountain because there were a lot of alleyways, unassumed alleyways mm-hmm. up there, especially in the older section right. uh, down between Concession Street and, and Fennel Avenue. Right. And uh, what has happened in many situations like this uh, is it becomes part of the fabric of a community, whether the city wants to admit that or not, that they are used as pathways and laneways. And, and, and I know that you can say, well, there's a concern about that. But the other side of that is, well, you know what, it, it keeps kids off busy streets sometimes. And I know an awful lot of the kids that went to Armstrong School on Concession Street, that old iconic school uh, uh, right near Upper Wentworth there, uh, they would use those unassumed alleyways to go back up to their neighborhoods into their school into their homes after school, uh, and there's some pretty heavy, uh, you know, pedestrian traffic as a result of this. Uh, so the city seems to simply ignore that and say, "Well, that's too bad. That's not happening." But it does seem to run contrary to to one of the city policies about getting off your cars and getting off your bikes and and start to walk and 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 using that sort of thing uh, and using laneways and pathways like this, uh, somewhat counterproductive and and. It's an old idea that, you know, if you're using it, then you simply assume it's always going to be there. And when it gets taken away all of a sudden, it can have an impact on community. Of course. Of course. No, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, this goes against so many parts of the city policy. Uh, their, their stated goals are to encourage people to walk. They even say that their vision is to be the best place to raise a child and age successfully. Well, you know, this is part of uh, those of us who are aging like to get out and walk. Um, those of us who are children like to get out and play, and that's a good place to do that without having to worry about car traffic. Um, you know, they look at uh, producing a healthy, safe, and prosperous community. Well, these alleyways produce healthy, safe, and prosperous communities. Uh, they look at, uh, they say their culture is collective ownership. Well, you know, this is collective ownership at its best because uh, people take care of the alley, this alleyway, at least people take care of it uh, on a collective basis, and yet they're going against that. Um, all the process looks at is going to their internal departments and saying, well, does hydro need this? Does, does Union Gas need this? Does water supply need this? Do any of those things happen? And if they don't, the city says, well, I guess we don't need it after all, and we'll get rid of it. It's interesting when you look at the neighborhood there, and I'm sure many of our listeners know the area down around Dundas Park there, Dundas Driving Park. Uh, it's 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 a bit of an anomaly because it's an old neighborhood, obviously. It's a very mature neighborhood. But it wasn't built as, as many others were in just a simply north, south, east, west grid. Uh, there are streets that are winding around like this. And, and we have a number of streets like that in other parts of the city right now with much newer surveys. And what I find interesting about that whole process uh, when you look at how they're designing those now, Bob, they actually build walkways into those surveys because they realize that somebody may live on a cul-de-sac or on a bending road, and instead of having to walk three or four blocks out of the way to get to where they want on the other side, they provide a walkway for them. Well, that one's already done here, and now That's it right. seems as if the city council decision is going to take that away. That's right. Yes, our grandparents did a pretty good job, perhaps unwittingly, but they did a pretty good job of providing this stuff, and we're uh, taking that heritage and saying, well, I guess it doesn't matter anymore. So where do you go from here? I mean, as you mentioned, this is a a committee decision. There's got to be a council ratification, and that will probably happen next week. It'll be on the agenda uh, next Wednesday at City Council. I don't know how that's going to go, but and I know that you know, hope springs eternal that maybe some other councillors may decide to do something about holding this up or delaying this or, or maybe even voting it down. I mean, those are the options. But the other option, of course, is they could agree with the staff decision and with the committee decision and do this. Where do you go? Do you drop the, just leave the drop the issue altogether, or are there next steps here? Well, most likely, as you know from your time on city council, the the city council as a whole will adopt the council the committee's decision. More often than not, they do, yeah. And so it's likely that this will go ahead and that we will have lost this public space. I mean, the the options that we have, um, we're looking at a possibility of of a legal uh, option if 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 that turns out to be a possibility, um, but. At this point, we don't know. We don't even know whether it's a possibility. I think right now most of us are fairly discouraged that it felt like the fix was in before we even started this process. And uh, in spite of, as you mentioned, well over 30 people that talked in favor of keeping this alleyway open, uh, the committee decided to vote against it. In spite of 650 people who signed a petition saying they wanted this alley kept open, it's going to be sold to a single individual. Did you feel as if uh, your time was was well spent yesterday going before this committee, or did you feel as if they'd already made up their minds? Well, as I said, I mean, it, 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 
it was a long shot, we thought, anyway, because it did feel like uh, our counselor had, had made her mind up um, before the day, and, and uh, we didn't think the committee members would vote against our counselor particularly. Um, so was it worthwhile yesterday? Yes, it's worthwhile. It's always worthwhile to state these opinions publicly and to make sure that it's on the public record that there are a lot of people who are opposed to this. Uh, and the next time, we'll do better, we hope. Interestingly enough, one of the options that's always available to you in these situations, of course, is 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 a, a petition of the Ontario Municipal Board. Uh, City Council seems to do that on a pretty regular basis, and they use, use our money to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you, as, as citizens, wanted to do this, you, you pretty much have to raise your own money, and that's rather onerous. It's quite onerous. It's quite onerous, yeah. It's, certainly if we wanted legal counsel, you're looking at upwards of twenty, thirty thousand dollars 30000 which most of us don't have sitting around in our back pockets. Um, so, yes, it is onerous, and it's not even clear. The law clerk, uh, the city clerk yesterday was asked whether this could be appealable to OMB, and she didn't think it was. But uh, we'll see. I mean, that's one of the legal opinions we're going to be looking for, certainly, is to see whether we can make an appeal to OMB. Well, next step is to see how the uh, Greater Council soon, uh, handles this, and, of course, that's going to come up next week. Uh, Bob, we'll certainly stay in touch with this. I do appreciate the time and uh, appreciate the uh, input I've received from many of your uh, residents and neighbors in that area about this. Obviously, there's a lot of passion here, and we'll see if that translates into action. Thanks so much for this today. There's a whole lot of passion. Let's keep our fingers crossed. You bet. Take care. Thanks. We'll talk Thanks. again soon. Okay. That's uh, Bob James, of course, resident of Dundas, one of many of who uh, spoke to the committee yesterday about keeping this alleyway open because it's public access for the people in this neighborhood and has been for so many years. Yet city council is going to sell it off for two bucks. Uh, unfortunate situation. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, the uh, debate and uh, the conversation continues about light rail transit, but, you know, one of the elements that we have talked about but probably need to talk about a whole lot more uh, seems that uh, the... Well, especially since we we seem to be moving along in the LRT process, you know, with the government of the day still on side with this and, and the funding in place and, and, you know, public meetings going on, et cetera, et cetera. But what about what's going to happen and the impact it's going to have on the, on the current HSR, including, by the way, the staff? Well, the union that represents HSR's bus drivers wants city council to declare that the HSR should operate and maintain those LRT lines once it is implemented. Union has launched a campaign which includes a petition, a website, and a video that urges uh, transit be kept public. Eric Tuck is the president of ATU Local 107. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this morning. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm very good, Bill, and how are you this morning? Good. Listen, i got to tell you, through all the debate and discussion, whether you're for it or against it or whatever the case might be with LRT, I, I always got the impression, and I've made mention of this on the show a number of times, it almost seems like you guys, I mean, in other words, the HSR and the people that are operating there right now, uh, seem to be the lost souls in this thing. You don't get talked to very often. You don't get asked your opinion on this very often. Are you being consulted at all as this process goes along? Uh, to be quite honest with you, Bill, we've had no consultation. Well, that's uh, a problem. Yes, absolutely. We've tried many times uh, to get through to the provincial government and to Metrolinx to uh, have the conversation. And to date, we've simply been put off and told that that's a discussion for later down the road. As you know, uh, <laughs> we are moving down the track here uh, to the implementation of LRT, and obviously the operating agreement uh, will be voted on by council. It's, uh, it's time to actually have those discussions in earnest. But there's a, there's a few things here that I, I think are extremely important here, uh, and, and I, I think that you, with the union itself and the people that are, let's face it, the front line that have been providing public transit here in this city for many, many years, uh, should at least be on the table. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if they want to give you voting rights on some of the stuff that's going on, but at least get your opinion on some of the stuff, because once this thing goes in, it's going to have an impact on what you guys are doing now, isn't it? It's definitely going to have a serious impact, Bill. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, if you look at it, uh, we've had no consultations, and this is seriously going to affect our community. Uh, as you say, we've been providing transit here in this community for well over a century, safe, reliable, and efficient transit. And uh, when, when you have an uh, organization that's been doing that for well over a century, why wouldn't you bring them to the table and have that conversation? Well, and I understand that obviously managers are going to be there and they're going to talk about this and that and the other thing. But, you know, I, I've always been a, an advocate for talking to the people that provide the service on the front line. I know it's it's one thing. 
you know, we're going to be talking about Tim Hortons a little bit later on in the show and in the, in the, in the potential lawsuit that's going on there. Right. And we can talk to franchisees all we want. But you know what? If you want to find out how the business is going, talk to the people at the cash register. And it's the same thing with, with the, when you talk about public transit in this city. Uh, we can, you know, do statistics and do surveys until we're, you know, we're blue in the face. But talk to the people that are delivering the service, the people that are driving the buses, the people that are, are, are managing the buses and finding out exactly what's going on. They're the ones that get the public input. That's correct, Bill. And unfortunately, the way the uh, procurement policy is with Metrolinks right now, the uh, government agency that's implementing the LRT here in Hamilton, uh, they've actually gone out of their way to shut us out of the, out of the process. Um, they, they, they have adopted this procurement policy that basically says you must bid on uh, design, build, operate, and maintain for 30 years. So even uh, you know local experts like ourselves who've been delivering this service uh, for well over a century and helped build this community have actually been shut out of the process. Well, I mean, you know, how many customer satisfaction surveys does HSR do on an annual basis? And, and maybe the easiest way to garner some of that information is just talk to a driver that just came off shift and say, well, what did you hear today? Correct. There's no no better expertise than the people that are actually on the front line. You're, you're absolutely correct in that. Let's let's so let's talk about that because that's an important element of this. And and how, how you you talk to the rank and file, even if Metrolinx isn't talking to the rank and file with HSR. What are you hearing from from your members, uh, Eric, about what's gone on so far and what's anticipated to happen vis a vis LRT and the impact it's going to have, uh, both good and bad, I guess, for the city. Yeah, so of course, uh, most of my membership have said that, you know, they believe that the uh, LRT is, is not necessarily the right choice, but at the end of the day, it's, it's the decision of the riding public and the transit uh, users of the city to decide what type of uh, transit system they want. Having said that, the implementation process, uh, obviously we don't want to see any part of our transit system privatized and turned over to a private corporation or a multinational company. Uh, that's going to take away that local uh, control and accountability that uh, currently our, our politicians are responsible for the type of service we deliver on a day-to-day basis. And unfortunately, when you get into these P3s, uh, it just becomes a blame game. When there's a problem out there in the system, you're not getting the service, or the safety is not uh, up to the standards of the, uh, the uh, public's expectations. There's no accountability. Uh, currently, we can go to our local politicians and say, hey, we're not happy with the service in our community, or, you know, the bus uh, didn't show up this morning, and that's a, a concern. Safety, reliability, that all comes down to accountability. And uh, under the current system, HSR uh, is accountable to council, and if you have a problem with your service, you pick up the phone and you call your local politician. I can tell you if the privatization goes through, all that accountability basically goes out the window. And uh, you'll have private corporations putting profits ahead of safety and, and uh, reliability. Now, we have done studies, well, not necessarily we, but City Council has, and certainly Metrolinx has, and, and the province uh, have funded a number of these studies. And invariably, part of that, Eric, is always saying, well, look, at, you know, we've gone to other cities that have LRT, and I don't just mean Toronto or KW. I'm talking about in a much broader sense right across North America. And they say, well, here's how they did it here, and this is how it works here, and here's the advantage that, that this city had. And it's it's good, useful information. I, I, I get that. And, I, you know, the more information we have, the better and more informed judgments we can make on this. But one element of this that they don't seem to talk about that you have brought up a number of times, and a few councillors have to their credit, is who runs the system, who manages the system, who actually drives these these units going back and forth. Have you guys done some research on this? I mean, who's doing this in other cities? So we have looked at that, and they have used private companies. And, you know, we, uh, and I'll use Waterloo because that keeps getting held up as an example. Well, we know for a fact that Waterloo Region, uh, by using the, th- the P3s, the Auditor General put out a report and said it cost that region an extra $48 million dollars. To, to put that system in simply because of the privatization part of it. Uh, and now there's going to be, you know, Waterloo is going to try and hold the, those private contractors accountable. And we know from local examples how well that works. Uh, as you said, all you got to do is look at the Tim Hortons uh, Stadium as a perfect example of where uh, P3s don't work. They, they brought the project in about 10 months late. The sound system fell out, you know, was falling off the wall and could have caused serious injury to somebody or killed somebody. Uh, they're currently dealing with a problem where the uh, leaking dressing rooms, about $500,000 uh, in damage. Um, you know, you don't have to look far. Look at the water treatment center. Uh, the city put that out to privatization, and then they brought it back in-house because they found they could save over a million dollars a year. 
the 407 is another perfect example, the most expensive highway in North America. You know, and the list goes on. So why is the government doing it this way? It's simply because they don't want to be on the hook or, or to say that they're borrowing that money. But by going to the three Ps, they're actually costing the taxpayers more in the long run because those uh, private consortiums go out and they actually borrow the money on behalf of the government. And then that's added in, uh, and you've got to put profits in there as well. So the reality is it costs taxpayers way more money. You have no accountability, and the quality and safety goes right out the door. But are, are there any jurisdictions, Buffalo, Portland, any of these other cities they've talked about, where the, the existing uh, unions, the existing uh, infrastructure, and the existing drivers are just using the, and, and taking over that system as well? Yes, quite often. You know, in the short term, it looks great. But in the long term, if you look at a lot of these projects, they are privatized. But the reality is, when you get near the end of those contracts, they run those uh, the equipment and everything into the ground. And then the local taxpayers left holding the bag because the contracts are uh, finished and now you've got to go out and buy all new infrastructure. So what are you guys doing about this? Let's, let's talk a bit about this strategy that you've developed now to try to create, first of all, some awareness, and I, I, I would imagine some support for this, Eric. Yes, we've, we've got quite a bit of community support, and we've kicked off a campaign. It's called Keep Transit Public, and we ask everyone to go to the website, uh, keeppublictransit.ca, sign the petition. We're lobbying council. We're lobbying the uh, local provincial government uh, MPs, MPPs to uh, make sure that Hamilton's an example. You know, Hamilton, we're going to build an LRT. Let's do it in the right way. Uh, let's use Hamilton as the example and build it with uh, community benefits in mind. Um, you know, there is such a thing as community benefits procurement, uh, which could be done where you use local labor, you pay fair wages and benefits, you respect local unions, collective agreements, and uh, you hold uh, the local uh, government accountable for the the service that they deliver. What kind of feedback are you getting from councillors on this? I mean, I, it's not really within their wheelhouse right now. I get the sense this is going to be a Metrolinx decision, but certainly I, I, I've talked to a couple of councillors that, that have got your back on this, and they seem to think that you're going down the right track, if we excuse the bad pun. No, I, I think absolutely. I think most local politicians understand the need to keep the local control, and they would like to do that. The problem is, is Metrolinx and the provincial government, and I think the timing is right to send the message loud and clear to the uh, current provincial government that if they uh, expect to continue to govern, that they have to do it in a responsible way, that they're accountable to the taxpayers, and therefore they should be addressing this procurement uh, policy of Metrolinx, and they should give clear directives that... Uh, it's not acceptable, and we have to do community procurement uh, with community benefits in mind. Is there a council position on this? I mean, I've talked to Councillor Jackson and, and one or two others that uh, that think that you know that you guys are are bang on here, and they'd like to see uh, your drivers, the HSR, actually manning and staffing the system uh, when LRT is finally implemented here in the city right now. But uh, I would imagine a, an official council position would go a long way towards uh, achieving that goal. Correct, and that's that's uh, our first step. Obviously, when they're voting on the uh, operating agreement, probably sometime in September or November, um, um, between November and, uh, or sorry, September and November, um, that they'll keep that in mind. We've asked them to introduce a motion and to pass it, uh, basically telling Metrolinx that they expect the expectation of council is that we will operate and maintain, and if they put that into the uh, operating agreement, then it'll be in the, the provincial government's court then to make sure that that happens. Who else do you need to get on side? City council would be nice. Uh, what about city staff? I mean, is again, they, they just seem to be, every time we've talked to the staff about this, they seem to be uh, obfuscating and simply saying, well, it's being negotiated. Uh, you know, that's that's like the check is in the mail. It's getting yeah, a little it's tired. Ambiguous, but uh, obviously it's not being negotiated, and, and there's been no negotiation. Certainly not with uh, with our union uh, or with our organization. Well, that's the point I've always made when I've asked staff about this. So they say it's being negotiated, and I said, "Well, if if, if ATU isn't at the table, you're not negotiating with them." Absolutely. So, uh, you know, when they refer to the negotiations, uh, you know, my assumption is that they're referring to the operating agreement between the city and between the province. And that's why I want to make sure that our city councillors uh, stand on side. They've said it uh, many times to me privately, and, and some have even been public, uh, that they believe that we should be operating and maintaining. Uh, and now it's time to take an official stand on that and so that the negotiations with the province can begin. Any word at all from city staff about this? 
uh, most city staff that I've talked to said they, they, you know, morally they do support that, but unfortunately Metrolinx is very ironclad in their procurement policies uh, and that uh, they've been given a directive to, to deal directly with Metrolinx and not with us. And, and therein lies the problem. Uh, you know, when I hear back uh, that it's, it's under discussion, it's being negotiated, uh, uh, variations on that theme, it, it sounds to me as if what they're trying to do is kick this issue down the road just a little bit and simply, you know, because because they don't want the controversy right now. But uh, as you mentioned, with KW, with the Toronto systems, it seems as if Metrolinx has made it quite clear uh, that that's the way they're going to do it, is that they don't want local unions involved in the operation of NALRT systems that are installed. Uh, you know, if they haven't done it in Ottawa, they haven't done it in KW, they haven't done it in Toronto, it doesn't seem likely that they're going to acquiesce and let it happen here in Hamilton. And if that's the case, then they should at least stand up and say so. Absolutely. You know, um, we've been talking for uh, since the announcement came out, uh, we've been asking for these types of discussions, and we've been told that, oh, yes, we agree with you, and we're, we're supportive of it, uh, but we got to wait for that discussion. Well, I'm telling you now, it's time to have that discussion, and I think it's time for the taxpayers and the local uh, citizens of this city to say, we're, we want the most efficient, safe, and properly operated transit system, and we have the experience here in Hamilton. We've done it for over a century. Uh, you know, Metrolinx often says, well, you have no experience in rail. Well, the reality is the Hamilton Street Railway started out in rail. So we do have experience in rail, and ATU has been operating rails across North America for many, many years. And uh, we have the experience and knowledge and ability to do it properly. Well, I'm old enough to remember the trolley cars on uh, some of the older routes down uh, James Street and down a certain Long Barton and, and places like that. And Sadly, remember the drivers having to get out and change the, uh, you know, the, the wires every now and then when they come off there. This is a little more intricate, and hopefully you're not going to have those sorts of tie-ups and those sorts of delays on this. But, uh, I mean, let's face it, Eric. I mean, any driver can be uh, trained on, on using these systems. It's not going to be as antiquated as the ones I just described. But, I mean, if you're, you're driving a bus, uh, you, you know how to do one of these things, too. It's, it's not really a rocket science here. It's just a matter of learning how to run the system. In fact, it's probably much easier. I've seen the uh, the operations uh, controls for, for the LRT, and uh, it actually is easier for, because you don't have to steer them. Obviously, they're on rails. Um, however, there is a, a lot of safety factors that come with operating that type of equipment. And that's, what, like I said, one of the reasons why I want to maintain that local control so that you know that the safety and the standards are kept up to the uh, expectations of the local public. Well, when I've looked in other cities, and, and Chicago and New York come to mind, I've, I've had the opportunity to be there a few times, both of those cities. Uh, very, very intricate tra transit systems there, and of course, in a combination of, of rail and, and obviously on street, uh, you know, with buses, et cetera, as well. Uh, the, the Chicago system, of course, is elevated. It's called the L and uh, the New York subway system. But my understanding from uh, talking to officials when I was in those cities is that it's it's all run by the same business. In other words, you know, the, them that drive the buses are the same people, the same union anyway, uh, that operate the other systems as well. It just seems this is a, a unique to Ontario situation where they want to try to separate those two. Correct, Bill. And one of the things that uh, you have to look at is if there is a breakdown or if there is a problem within the system, who do you think they're going to be calling to come and pick up the slack for that? By having one union, one system, um, you know, that we, we support each other in those types of situations. Uh, if you have a private consortium that's operating this thing and uh, suddenly there's a, an accident or something gets blocked on those rails, it can create a real traffic problem uh, and suddenly, uh, you know, a nightmare for people trying to get to or from uh, wherever they're going. So to have one system, a, a unified system where you're supporting one another, uh, certainly goes a long way for the efficiencies of that system. There is a, a, a time sensitivity to this, though. As you mentioned, uh, you know, the operating agreement, that that, that is something council is going to vote on, uh, is coming up, I would think, sometime between now and the end of the year. As a matter of fact, some of the uh, sources I've been talking to indicate that it could be a much sooner, that it's sometime in September or October at the latest. So so it's important, I guess, to get these, these opinions out there and to get some solidified uh, support or at least some clarification from some of the folks that you're trying to reach here. Yes, that's, that's correct, Bill. It could come as early as September, and that's why we want council to uh, and the public to get on board. 
to support their local transit system, to support the local control over that transit system, and to stop the uh, the privatization of the system. Eric, we'll see how this grows. Uh, once again, the website for people to go to to get more information is? KeepTransitPublic.ca. Go on the site and uh, click on the petition. You'll be able to send it to all your local councillors as well as the MPPs. Eric, thanks so much for the time today, and uh, good luck with this program. We'll certainly follow this over the next couple of weeks and uh, see what kind of an uptake you get on this. Thanks again. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Eric Tuck, president of the American Am- Amalgamated Transit Union, rather, uh, Local 107. Those, those are the guys, the, the men and women that run the transit system here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, like I said, it's, it's, it's rather odd uh, because in other cities, in American cities, uh, it seems to be one system and and one union, obviously one set of drivers that are handling both situations because you'd like to think that there is going to be some interaction between the two because LRT is going to have an impact on what's going to be happening with the allocation of buses and bus routes. And uh, it'd be kind of neat if they, you know everybody was kind of on the same page here. And I'm not so sure that's going to happen if you've got independent operators who are working for Metrolinx as opposed to working for the HSR. But, uh, again, the official word that we have from Metrolinx when we asked them about this, and we've asked them on numerous occasions, is that, well, it's, uh, it's being discussed. I'm not so sure that's necessarily the truth, but that's really what they give us right now. We'll see what happens in the next couple of months. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. This is uh, something that's near and dear to my heart. I mean, I make no bones about the fact that I'm a dog lover. We have dogs and love our dogs, and I love all dogs. They're fabulous. Uh, and many people I know that have dogs treat them like family. So it bothers me, and, and I mean really upsets me when I see dogs being abused and not treated properly. Now, you know the scenario. Uh, it's not too bad outside right now. It's 21 or 70 degrees. But we've had some really hot, muggy weather over the last couple of weeks uh, here in this area. Uh, right across Ontario, as a matter of fact. And uh, more often than not, you will always see in, in a parking lot at a store, pharmacy, whatever the case might be, some clown that leaves the car locked with the windows up or even just slightly cracked and a dog inside. And uh, the SPCA will tell you that when it's 31 or 32 degrees or 28 degrees, whatever it is, it's hot and sticky uh, in a closed car with very little ventilation. It's like putting the, it's a, it's an oven in there. And uh, you wonder about the well-being of the dog. We're seeing situations, we've seen some situations where people have actually tried to free those pets. Uh, but it can be problematic depending on which municipality that you live in. A man in London, Ontario, decided to fight for a bylaw that will actually see bylaw officers able to save animals that are left in cars on hot summer days. He encountered an incident uh, where a dog was left in a car with cracked windows and Well, I'll let him tell the story as to what actually motivated him to do that. Cole Benjamin is a London man who is petitioning to have this bylaw created in the city of London. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to tell us his story. Cole, thank you for being with us. It's great to have you on the show today. How you doing, Bill? I'm Thanks doing, for having me on. I'm doing great. Uh, listen, we're dog lovers. We have that in common. Uh, we've all seen situations like you discovered. Maybe before we get into what you're doing about this, uh, explain the, uh, the the scenario and the incident that really kind of put you over the top and decided to motivate you to get this thing done. Well, I had uh, I had to get a prescription filled at a local drugstore. So, on my way into the drugstore, I noticed the dog was in uh, was in the car, uh, like like the scenario that you described. Windows down just a little bit. Um, car was parked right out in you know not in the shade at all, right in the middle of the parking lot. I thought to myself, well, they probably just ran in to grab something quick, so they're probably not going to be too long. I didn't think too much of it. It wasn't an extremely hot day. I believe it was 22 degrees at the time. Uh, I went into the drugstore, filled my prescription, and as you know, that generally takes, you know, half an hour or so. Sure. And and upon coming out uh, to get back in my car, I saw the dog still in the car. And at that point, I called the police. Uh, the police dispatcher uh, told me that she would send someone around and that I should, uh, you know, take down the license plate number of the car. Um, and if the owners come out, um, that I should just uh, generally note which direction they go. Now, the owners did come out. Um, I told them what they were doing was against the law. Uh, they said, yeah, whatever, and got into the car and, and left. Uh, about 
Were, were, were they in the pharmacy, the same pharmacy that you had been in? Yeah, and they came out, you know, they had like four bags of groceries with them. They had a child in a, you know, a, uh, one of the detachable uh, car seats. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they'd, they'd been in there, well, at least a half hour, because I was in there a half hour, right? And uh, so they got into their car and left. Um, and about 10, 15 minutes later, uh, the police officer that had been dispatched came to... Uh, Actually, he he never did even show up. He just called me on my cell phone, and he told me that uh, although what these people were doing was immoral, it wasn't illegal, and which was a surprise to me. Um, so since then, like basically, he said, "I'm not going to show up. Uh, just what I should do is call the OSPCA." So I called the OSPCA. No answer at the OSPCA. Uh, no answer through the weekend at the OSPCA. And then finally, Monday morning, I got a hold of them, and they said that uh, there is a, a provincial law stating that you're not allowed to put an animal in, in danger and that uh, they are the ones that are supposed to respond to these calls. The, but, the SPCA is supposed to respond. Exactly, yes. And from from what I've seen, trying to get a hold of them all weekend if you can't get a hold of them, how are they going to respond? No kidding. And so, <laughs> it's a definite issue, right? <laughs> so, but if there's a this is what I, I this connect. If there's a law against it in Ontario, why aren't police officers enforcing that law? Why why are why are they relying on the SPCA uh, officers, uh, <clears throat> however many of those there might be? Uh, to come in there. What are they supposed to do? Did they explain to you exactly what the process is supposed to from, be? It just seems from odd. What I've, <clears throat> from what I've found out is uh, the only people that are allowed to enforce this law and rescue these dogs is the OSPCA. Um, so what I, through my research, I've, uh, I've looked up uh, that Waterloo is one municipality that has passed this bylaw and apparently, city of Mississauga has done it too. Yeah, I've I've read that since as well. And basically, what that does is it enables bylaw officers and police officers to act accordingly when uh, when there is this situation, right? Because if you can't get a hold of someone, that dog's going to die or be severely injured, right, from heat stroke and whatnot. So. Basically, like, what I'm trying to do is just create a response team. I've got all kinds of people, you know, on my Facebook page and everything saying that, you know, is this bylaw going to make it legal for us to smash the window? No, that's not the case. And that's not what I'm trying to do is allow people to smash windows. I'm just trying to get someone to respond to these situations. Well, and because, you know, that has happened. Uh, which is maybe why people are, are, are citing that as an extreme measure. I, I can remember a couple of incidents. I think it was in Toronto uh, a couple of years ago. I was watching Global News, and there, I know there was one in particular that sticks out in my mind, Cole, and it was uh, right down by the Gunner Expressway in Toronto, and it was a very hot day, like one of those 30, 32-degree days. And uh, same situation, I guess. Uh, it was a, a rather large dog, and it was in there, and I guess they noticed this, and they called, and the cops didn't come, and uh, but 45 minutes later, it was still there, and some guy actually took the matter into his own hands and did smash the window, and then the owner showed up, and uh, it got rather confrontational, yeah. as you might expect. Uh, and you're not you're not suggesting this happened. You're simply suggesting, look, it put this into the hands of bylaw officers or police, whatever the case might be. Somebody that somebody that's going to respond, yeah, yeah. And because uh, a lo- one one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that okay, let's say you do smash the window. Okay, and then now you've smashed the window of a dog. You know, the dog is in the car. What if that dog is vicious? Yeah. Yeah, what you, you, don't, you dog... don't do that. It's not the right thing to do. But you should right. notify and, the and authorities. What if, what if the dog is, uh, like, skittish, jumps out the window and then runs into traffic and gets killed by a car? Yeah, there's right? a, a lot of downside to this stuff. So, So what's actually on your petition? What are you looking for support for here? Uh, basically, I'm trying to get people to sign uh, to support the fact that we need a response team 
And I don't really care who it is, police officers, bylaw officers, fire department, um, someone to respond to these calls because, we, like you said in your opener, uh, we see it more and more every day. Someone's yeah. got to come out and save these animals. Here's the problem. and Have you had any legal advice on this? Uh, no. All right, because this is what I found. I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but I mean, I've talked to people in the legal profession about this, uh, about cruelty to animals. And, and, you know, they're absolutely right. There is a statute that, from, that says that, you know, if we're, for instance, putting dogs in cars like this, is, uh, it's, uh, it's a provincial standard. And it says, you know, you can't do this because it's cruel and unusual punishment towards animals. But animals mm-hmm. are considered property uh, under the law, which I, I, I find... Uh, a little frustrating in and of itself. I mean, in other words, it has about the same uh, legal rights as a briefcase. Uh, it's right. property. It's it, they don't. They certainly. And I'm not one of these people that says no. You know, dogs are, are like humans. No, they're not. They're. I get that. But they are living, breathing entities. They are. They are life forms. They're not the same as an inanimate object. But when you simply exactly. ca- class them as property. Uh, it, it, I think it devalues uh, any living thing to simply say that that's property. If you're doing something which is causing harm to a living thing, I, I think that you should be breaking some kind of law. Uh, and, and if there is no law there, then I think there's a problem. Absolutely. Yeah, I, you ask any pet owner, they're not, they don't think of their, their pets as, uh, as property. No, of course not. There are fur kids. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, for God's sakes, if you want to put this in perspective, a hundred years ago, women were considered property. Uh, you yeah. know, we're smarter than Very that true. now. And and I'm not I'm not trying to draw any correlations here. I'm just saying it seems a rather an inadequate portion of the law to simply say that. Well, we're not sure what they are. They're property. Uh, they're yeah. they're right. living, breathing entities. Whether it's a cat, a dog, I don't care what it is. Uh, a yep. horse, if that's what you've got in there. I don't care if you can fit one into your car, and knock yourself out. But but <laughs> you know, you shouldn't be able to abuse living, breathing things like this. Uh, you know, Absolutely. I know, for instance, I do know that we, we covered a case a couple of years ago, a sad, sad case about some idiot that actually put a cat in a microwave, uh, and you might expect what the result was. He was charged. Mm-hmm. He was charged, and he was convicted. Now, the, the, the penalty was rather insignificant, unfortunately, but there were charges brought against him. Well, what's the difference between what that idiot did and leaving an, an animal inside a car when the temperature is like, well, probably 40 or 45 degrees Celsius and you know, on some of these hot, muggy days. It's the same thing, really. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. It's, it's just ludicrous that we still think of our pets as property. Well, under the law, anyway. So, so let's, yeah, what kind I'll of reaction? There. What kind of reaction are you getting? Uh, it's, I would say, about 99% positive from uh, the community. Uh, I've got several uh, uh, organizations that are backing me. Um, you know, uh, every now and then I'll get a quack that, uh, you know, disagrees with me. And, you know, the, one of those keyboard warriors of people that hide behind their their computer screen and, you know, they know everything. But uh, 99% of it has, has been positive. Um and I've got over a thousand signatures in less than a week. So here's what I don't understand about this. As a dog owner, and, and and I know a lot of our listeners that that are listening to our conversation right now uh, have pets of some description. But if you if you are a dog owner, how could you, in good conscience, do this to your pet? How could you stick it in the car for long periods of time? in hot weather like that when you know it's problematic. And like it, I, I, I get that. Okay, we have to go to the front. We have to get groceries. We have to do this. We have to do that. You're, you're better off leaving the dog at home, uh, you know, in, yeah. in, in whatever situation than to stick it in the car. I mean, I love having our dogs with us. But there are some places that we're going to that we're going to be for some period of time where it just doesn't make sense. How could people actually do that? And close those windows up. And, you know, obviously it's a safety thing. Let's close the windows up. You can't have the windows open because the dog, you say, will escape. Leave the dog at home. But but these are dog owners that are doing it, Cole. It, it, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I don't understand it either. Like, would you would you leave your child in the car? Well, I've heard that too, unfortunately. I, yeah. it, it takes like, all uh, kinds, I guess. Yeah, when those people came out uh, in the situation I was in, they like I said, they had their uh, their child in the uh, in the detachable car seat, and I asked them. I said, "Would you leave your child in the car?" And what did they say? And, you know, 
not anything that I can uh, say on the radio. Ah, okay. <laughs> I, I, just as I anticipated then. Uh, Mississauga does this, as I say, Waterloo does this. They have implemented bylaws that allow city bylaw officials to remove dogs from vehicles. Now, they, do, they don't do it by smashing windows, my understanding is, because that is illegal. You can't do that. Yeah, so, but but so they do have ways of accessing there. the car. Same as if you, you, know, you call CAA and you've left your keys in the car. I mean, they can open the car uh, and, sure. and extricate the dog in a situation like that. Uh, but I guess obviously they have to assess the situation. I mean, if it's you know twenty below and the dog's in the car, I don't think too many people are going to get concerned. But yeah. uh, but in weather, you know, and we know we're going to get this hot, steamy weather once again. Uh, it's going to mm-hmm. happen. Uh, if they want to get details about this, where can they go? Uh, if they go to change dot org, that's my petition site. Okay. Uh, uh, you, and then just search for uh, dogs in hot cars. Uh, it'll come up. Under under London, and also uh, on Facebook, if you uh, just search for uh, petition for dogs in hot cars in London, Ontario, well, you'll let's find it there as well. Let's see what kind of feedback we get on this. Cole, thanks so much for the time, and listen, good luck with this initiative. I hope it works out for you. Thanks very much for the press and uh, helping spread spread the word, Bill. You will. You can bet on that. Thanks so much, Cole. Cole Benjamin, Thank of course, you. from London, Ontario, trying to get a bylaw created in that city. Uh, to actually make it illegal to leave cars in uh, hot cars, or dogs rather, in hot cars. What do you think? Good idea, bad idea? Would you like to see something like that in your community? Sue, you're on the Bill Keller Show on CHML. Thanks for joining us, Sue. Hi. Hi. What do you think of this idea? Well, I have some solutions. Burlington has Sound of Music. They don't allow any animals or bicycles. Um, Any event in Hamilton, the city council can act on it immediately. By not allowing any animals, um, particularly at any of these events. And uh, the other side of it is to penalize the people that leave children or animals in cars, is to lock them in the cars with no air conditioning or anything else, no water, windows shut tight and locked, and leave them there for a long period for everybody to stare at them and make fun of them for being stupid. Well, I don't necessarily know we're going to get a law that's going to allow people to, to you know, the perpetrators to, to get locked in their own cars and as, as a way of doing that. That's uh, somewhat of a Middle Ages approach to this. But there may well be some credibility to putting a bylaw in place to allow this. And, uh, and, and to your point about some of these places and some of these festivals now, that uh, that don't allow pets. Actually, more and more are starting to allow pets, and uh, more and more places of business are starting to allow pets, which uh, in some cases begs the question: Then why are you even leaving them in the car? We'll see how this happens, uh, how this occurs in London, and just what kind of a result uh, Cole Benjamin's going to get on this, and uh, what other communities are actually going to take up the, uh, the the cause here and see what they can do about this. Because this is something I'm telling you. I mean, we're not, we're not even at the end of June yet. You know what July and August are like around here. You're going to hear stories like this, and you're going to shake your head and you wonder how could people do this. Well, because right now there's no law against it in many of these communities, anyway. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.